This morning, if you have your Bible, or sorry, this afternoon, because it's just after 12, if you have your Bible with us, with you, can you turn to the book of Hebrews? We'll be reading from chapter 5, and then we'll read all the way to the end of chapter 6. So we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and then reading down to verse 21 in chapter 6. Of course, I won't be preaching all of that. You can... <laughs> but yeah, we can read it and then have a look at it in its context. Okay, I'll read it so you can follow along in your Bibles, okay? Then during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once was made perfect, once made perfect, became the source of all eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop that is useful for those for whom it is farmed and receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. And in the end, it will be burned. Even though we, are, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation, God is not unjust. He will not forget your works, the love that you have shown him as you help, have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but imitate those who, by, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promises to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, 
I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And oaths confirm what is said and puts to an, an end of, to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us. May be, greater, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Amen. You should never think about other things when you're reading. It just kind of snares you there. Beloved, as we've been looking at this portion of Scripture written by the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a message not just to the church of that age, but an eternal message down through all the ages into eternity. It's an encouragement for us to look and to put all our faith, all of our trust, our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, for the the keeping of our lives. We know the circumstances and the context in which it was written. The Hebrews were beginning to feel the weight of persecution. It's written to three different types of, of hearers, readers, to the faithful, to the believer, to the outright practicing, to those who have made a confession but their confession is wavering. They are feeling the weight, the pressure of Social pressure. They're going backwards and not going forwards in their faith. They're beginning to conform to the patterns of the world. They were beginning to participate in temple worship. Beginning to offer up sacrifices again. Beginning to practice the Jewish traditions. And then to the third group... Those who are just nominal. They, they, call, they call themselves Jews, but they did not believe. There was no living faith within them. They were part of the synagogue, but they were just social Christians. They were Jews because their mother was a Jew. And it had been passed on to them. They had no real faith, no real life in Christ. And so we've seen the writer here continually reminding them of the preeminence, the first place of Jesus Christ in our faith. And how Jesus is greater than any other being. That he is worthy of our trust. That we can trust him. We should be confident in our faith. Confident in our trust. And not have to go, be, go by, not begin to conform, not begin to rub out the edges and make them suddy. What's that in English? Suddy. Fuzzy, thank you. Fuzzy. Fuzzy edges between our Christianity and our relationship with the world. 
And we've seen at times as he's writing through, he stops in the middle of his message, in the middle of his sermon, in the middle of his teaching. And he begins to speak as a pastor speaking to his congregation. And he comes with very real and very relevant warnings. He exhorts his listeners, his readers, to take stock of their lives. And indeed, some ways, he rebukes them very heavily. I mean, in the portion we read today, he refers to them as infants, as, as small children, as weaning babes. Not even toddlers, not even, not even like Eusebius or, or, or Felix, not even that old, but children who are dependent upon their mother's milk. And he says it in such a way that it is an insult to them. You who are adults, you who are grown up, you're still behaving like your babies at the breast. We see here that the language that is being used is strong and forceful. And it's, an, it's like being shaken. He's not afraid to speak to them straight. And to call them personally. He is calling them to respond to the word. I like the way he doesn't leave it to the end of his message. You know, in modern preachology, I don't know if that's a word, I just made it up right there. Preachology, the, the skill, the, the, the science of preaching. We normally preach our points, our three points. Good sermon always has three points at least. And then we leave the application to the end. Because these things are true, therefore we must do this. And you must do this. This is what must happen. Well, the speaker, the writer, the preacher here in the book of Hebrews, well, he doesn't do that. He interrupts his message. He's so full of passion, so full of zeal, so full of worry for the people who are around him. That he interrupts his message and then has to resume it later on. And here in this, he's doing that exact same thing. You who have been with us, you who have had faith in Christ for so long, by this time, you should be adults, you should be teachers, not just an, a mature person in the faith, not just an adult, but you should be one who is teaching other adults. You should be a teacher. You've been doing this so long, you should know what you're talking about. Strong language, scolding language. This man was not an ear tickler. He was not a, a, a man who sought to romance his congregation. He cares about their, social, their spiritual and social life. He does not want them to live a life where they believe one thing but they're practicing another. Last week we looked at I'd, uh, from 6 down to 8, or from the beginning of 6 down to 8, about the, the dangers of false profession. Remember we used the, the, uh, the spiritual law of interpreting Scripture by Scripture, and we looked at what was said there by looking at Jesus' own teaching about those who come to salvation, those who hear the Word and respond to it. From the parable of the sower. Where Jesus explains that there are those among us. 
who hear the word. And on some, it has no, no reference. If you've ever, ever done street preaching, I know some of us have, and you're preaching in the street and people are just moving by. You're explaining to them the most important mysteries, the most important truths, and there's no response. They just pass by. Or if you're lucky, there's no response. Sometimes they, they'll hurl abuse at you. Or Men like Whitfield, George Whitfield, they threw dead cats at him and peed at him from trees. It's never happened to me, thank God. There, Jesus explained that there are those who are so dead in their heart. Their hearts are so hard that the, scripture, the, the word of truth doesn't penetrate. And then he explained, of course, that there were those who hear the word. And their hearts are so stony that it, there's a shallow ground there. And it, there can be a response. There's an immediate an explosion of growth. A more unemotional thing, but then Jesus explained persecution, suffering, sacrifice is called for. And immediately, all of that spontaneous growth withers and dies. As soon as real life is applied to their circumstances, they flee from Christ. They have made profession. They have expressed their love for Christ. Then the time for sacrifice, for commitment comes and they're gone. As quickly as they've come, so quickly they leave. And they demonstrate not that they had had a a faith in Christ that wasn't enough. Not that, that, that God has done something in them, but it wasn't good enough to save them. No, they demonstrate that their profession of faith was not a real profession of faith. Their heart wasn't in it. It was an outward acknowledgement, but not an inward. Jesus then goes on to explain about the seed that falls in the thorny ground. Again, this is those who hear the message, respond to it, acknowledge Christ, make a profession of faith, and go on. And in some way, in some measure, they grow, at least in an outward way. They learn to say the right things. They learn where they're, they sit. We call them in Ireland, we call them seat warmers. They come every week. They sit. But there's no real spiritual growth. There's no real spiritual dynamic in their life. They never really become part of the congregation's spiritual development. They're just there as a social basis. And again, Jesus explained that the things of this world, the temptations, the ambitions, their desires for this life and for their best life now strangles any kind of spiritual growth. And of course, the idea there is that this is not a person who who has received the Spirit of God and yet somehow in some way... God's spirit isn't able to save them, transform them or change them, that isn't able to kind of complete the deal. No. The teaching is that this is a person who has made a profession of faith that is not real. In their heart, they still have idols. In their heart, there's still too much of this world. They love this world more than they love Christ. And therefore, they have never fully trusted. They have made an outward expression, but lack the inward reality. 
an outward form of godliness without the inward reality. And so the writer here in Hebrews warns us about those kind of people. He warns us that those who have made those false professions, who have been among us, and have experienced in some point, in some way. They've heard the testimonies. They've seen the answers of prayer. They may have been the objects of answers of prayer. God may have intervened in their circumstances. As a result of our prayers. But for some reason. When it comes time for them to be tested, their faith falls short and it is demonstrated in them leaving. They leave the faith and they become embittered. I told you last time that in my 30-something years of doing this, I have seen countless people come and make professions of faith in Christ and then leave. You become embittered and become Christ-haters and they Talk wickedness about the church. Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, they're terrible people. Oh, don't go there. Don't listen to that. Doesn't work. I tried Christ once and it doesn't work. Their hearts are hard. And it is nigh impossible for them to come back. And the the warning in 7 and 8 where he talks about the land, how it drinks in the rain. And it's a warning. Those who produce good fruit will be blessed. Those who produce thorns and thistles, well, they will be cursed and ultimately they will be good for nothing other than burning. And it is a a call to self-examination. A call to look at your own life and your own walk with Christ. Because that's his real point here. He does not want you to take it for granted that you are a Christian. Remember, he's talking to these people who have made professions in Christ that's not real. And he's trying to warn them before it's too late. Don't take it for granted But examine your heart. Examine your life. Examine how you live your life. You know, this week as I was looking through this, I was reminded of the, I was going to say the Gospel of James. I have to stop saying the the Gospel of, the book of James. Jacob's Brevet. And how someone told me this week that that it doesn't teach um, justification by faith. It doesn't teach it teaches against justification by faith. And we know that's not to be true. Because it says that our faith is demonstrated by our actions. You cannot just say you have faith. A statement of faith alone, a, a, a confession by itself is not enough. There must be evidence to your confession. Your faith must be demonstrated in the commitment that you have towards Christ not a commitment to a religion or to a a church a congregation not a a commitment to a, a kind of theology but your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ for these Hebrews their commitment was being challenged remember they were being encouraged to have Jesus Christ plus something else Jesus Christ plus circumcision. 
Jesus Christ plus temple attendance. Jesus Christ plus the words of the elders. Remember they had written all these commentaries about the law. And they were more interested in what the rabbis had to say about the law than the law itself. And then you would quote the, 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 the law, you would quote Moses to them or something from the Decalogue. And they would say, yes, yes, that, it does say that. But Rabbi so-and-so says this in that comparison. And they would try and thin down or deflect from the words of Scripture by appealing to Rabbi such-and-such. And the Christians were being encouraged, forced, pressured to add to Jesus Christ. To conform so that they didn't feel the weight of persecution. So that people didn't think they were weird or strange or awkward or freaks or cult. And he warns them, these people. Now in verse... Nine. Today we'll be looking from verse 9 down to 12. And here again we see the pastor's heart. Even though we speak like this. Even though I'm speaking so hard. So harsh. Now you and I might read what he's just written. And not realize that that's harsh. Because it's been so gentrified. Again I don't know if that's a real word. I made that up right there man. So Soft. We, in our translations, we make those things soft. We sleep, rub off the hard edges so that it doesn't pick our hearts. But he's been harsh with them. He's been hard with them. He hasn't been pulling any punches. He's been hitting them hard. And so he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends. And that's a lovely expression. Beloved ones. My near people, those people that I actually really care about. You people who are worth something to me. You mean something to me. And he's speaking to people who mean something to him. We are confident of, thing, of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. And here is the comfort because he doesn't want to so trouble the hearts of his people. And I have noticed this many times. That true believers worry about their sin. True believers. They see one little attitude. One little fault. One little fear. One little temptation. And it's a, a traumatic experience. Oh I don't know if I'm a Christian. Oh I don't know if I'm a believer. Oh. And they can go on for ages with this. Trauma. I was afraid of this. And he's aware that how hypersensitive us as Christians can be. How afraid, how serious we take these things. And we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be false. And therefore we can carry this unworthy burden. Where the enemy comes along and whispers, are you a Christian? Did you really? Oh, and he magnifies our faults and our failings and says you couldn't be a Christian because secretly you, know, you, you, you are open to this kind of temptation. Or you said that or you said this. And he can send us into a world of worry. Whereas those who are not true Christians... Those who make outward professions but lack the inner reality. You couldn't beat their 
conscience with a big stick. I have worked with men who have been caught in adultery, who profess to be believers. And then you point out and say, but that's a sin. And they were like, no, I don't think it's a sin. Jesus has forgiven me. But your act of adultery, the actual act, you left your wife for another woman, that's wrong. And that, Christ is not happy about that. You need to repent of it. You need to make right your relationships. No, 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 no. And their hearts are so rock hard that their, their consciences are not even troubled. I love this woman, therefore it's the will of God that I'm with her. If God didn't want me to be with her, he wouldn't have made me love her. And they make all kinds of excuses and all kinds of lies to appease their situation. And the writer here in Hebrews, he knows the, the state of us Christians. He knows that we're easily troubled. And he wants to comfort those who are real believers. He wants to calm them down. And therefore, how does he do it? He says, well, you look at your life. Look at what the Holy Spirit has produced from you. Look at the, the, the suffering, the persecution. Look at the sacrificial love that you have produced in relationship to God's people. These are the things that accompany salvation. The love, the patience, the perseverance, the reconciliation, the forgiveness. When you've been put in circumstances that have challenged you and would break normal people, would send them into years of therapy, the Spirit of God comes and boom, there's a work there. And things are radically transformed and radically changed. The works that accompany salvation are present in your life. Things that you're not able to do by yourself are happening. You can see the work of God in your experience. Where you as a person are not able, God is able. And therefore he's comforting them. Assuring them. We need to be comforted and we need to be assured. It's very often, very, it is very often that we, we can become unsure. Have you ever had a car that's had a, a wobbly wheel? You know, that's not balanced? And as you're driving, the car kind of shudders a little bit. Jiggle, 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 jiggle. Is it only me who's done that? Okay. And then you have to take the car to the guy who does the wheels and he rebalances the wheels. Oftentimes in our lives, that can happen to us. I know a woman, I cannot tell you who it was, who drove over a hole once in a car. I cannot tell you whose car it was. And the wheel of the car came loose. Can I tell you whose car it was? And it caused the car to shudder and also to have this kind of do 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 noise. And the person, the husband of this woman, whom I cannot tell you who it was, he had to take the car to the garage because he couldn't find out what was the problem with the car. And the garage man phoned him and laughed and says, do you know one of your wheels is almost loose? Almost taken off? And I said, no, I didn't. Oh, sorry. And that's what I said. <laughs> I don't know who that was. A shock, a distress, 
A sudden bang in our lives can cause things to fall out of alignment. Can leave us shuddering, frail and broken, upset and unbalanced in our lives. And we, just like that man's car, need to be reset. The tire had to be rebalanced, had to be reattached to the car. And oftentimes in our lives, we need that rebalancing. And that's what the writer is doing here. He wants you to look at things realistically. He doesn't want to so overload you with worry and care where you're in the minutia of everything. Well, here at that time, at that point, I was afraid. Here at that point, I, 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 met, I should have said something, but I didn't say something. He doesn't want us so to magnify our failings in our feelings that we are overcome and burnt out and weary. He wants you to see things realistically. And he's calling the believers to look, look at your lives. Look at the things that, you've, that, that God has done in you and through you. And be assured that you see God working in your lives. Those things that accompany salvation. God has at some point in some way intervened. And I'm not saying in a big massive lightning bolt from heaven. You know with the, the disco balls of the glittery lights. And smoke machines and some sort of oh, experience. But God quietly. God mystically somehow in some way by an act of his providence and a, a move of his spirit has moved in you. And you've been able to forgive. You've been able to love. You've been able to go on when others would have given in. Beloved, we are being comforted and strengthened here. We are to be reminded that real salvation produces real works in your life. Christian, look onto the work of God in your life and take confidence in that. Not in, in you. Don't look at your works and think, well, I've done this and I've done that. Because we know that's dangerous. Remember, Jesus warned that in the last day, there will be many who come to him and said, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and that and this and that in your name? And Jesus replies to them with those most terrible of all words. Get away from me, you workers of iniquity. You who knew what should have been done, but never did it. For I never knew you. These are people who claim to have familiarity. They use the, the, the title Lord, Lord to use it twice as a, a familiarity. Oh! And Jesus says to them, get away from me. I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Don't look at your own works. Don't look at the things that you have achieved. Look at the fruit of the Spirit within your life. The joy, the peace. In times of trouble. Of the ability to persevere and go on. To trust. When all things are in a shamble around you. We're told here in this text that God is not unjust. Isn't that a wonderful statement? For God is not unjust. 
You know, George Muller, some of us know who George Muller was, a Prussian, that's a German, before Germany existed, uh, Christian, the man of faith, so-called. God used him mightily. He, in his book, uh, the book that's written about him, he says, no, you, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. You cannot outdo God on anything. Would you give back, would you give to God, God will give back to you in great supply. So much more than you can imagine. Pressed down, heaped up and overflowing. That's the expression he uses in his book. Now that's not a health, wealth and prosperity gospel. That's biblical teaching right there. The Bible says that God is not unjust. God remembers those things that you do for him. Those acts of sacrifice, those acts of commitment, those trials and persecutions, those difficult times when you have walked in his ways and kept his requirements and it has cost you. God remembers. Indeed, the Bible says that anyone who loses family, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters, in this life and in the next, will receive a hundredfold more. God is not unjust. That's wonderful. God treats us all the same, but also God remembers. It's not like you do do something... You remain faithful to God and your Lord, Lord, it's costing me everything. But Lord, because I love you, because I know you to be true, I remain faithful to you. It's not like God then stands and says, so, I don't care. I don't, I don't, I don't, big deal. Somebody said something bad against you at work. Somebody mocked Christianity at work and you said nothing. Or you, you, sorry, the other way around. You defended. Do you remember the story I think I've told you in the past when I worked in Varax and I used to have all the young men sit with me because I was an older man and for some reason they found my Irishness amusing. And one of the young men at the table sitting across me said, do you know that these fundamental Christians was in the newspaper and he said, these fund- they believe in the flood and Noah's Ark? And I was like, and he said, and I was like, oh dear. And everybody laughed and sniggered at the table. And, he says, and they believe that there were dinosaurs on the ark. Something about Ken Ham. I don't know what it was. Uh, and, I, and I was like, mm. and they all kind of laughed. And, oh, they're crazy, mad, silly Christians. Don't know anything. Evolution's the word. And I, and I had to choose, do I laugh too? <laughs> or do I have to say, well, you know, I believe in a flood. I believe in Noah. I believe in the, the ark. I believe that there were dinosaurs perhaps on the ark. Not necessarily full-size ones. Whatever, you know. I believe that God created the world in six days. Don't understand it, but I believe it. I believe on the seventh day he rested. And of course, Kyle being stupid Kyle. I had to say, no, actually boys, I believe that. And I get a little, little explanation and sat there. And everybody was like stunned at the table. Awkwardness. And these are the young men that sit with me and I've been praying for them and asking the Lord to speak to them. And here at this moment, I'm at a junction. Do I speak up for the things of the faith or am I silent? You know, because I don't want to ruin my friendship with them. I don't want them to think less of me 
You know, I enjoy their enjoyment of me. And me saying this might make them think I'm a crazy person, which they already do anyway. And then one of the other young men went, went, well, respect that. I can respect that. You know, wow, really? And then he asked the question, why, Kai? And, and we walked, talked a little bit more. And, and he was like, well, yeah, yeah, okay. That's, wow. And then we started talking about other things. And the gospel was inter- brought into the conversation. Now, the Lord is not unjust. Where I know for a fact that when other believers were being, or people who professed to be believers were being mocked in my workplace, those young men stood up for me and defended me as a Christian. Even if they're not Christians. God, I believe, put it in their hearts to be defenders of me. You cannot outdo God. And God remembers. And God will take care of you. He's not the kind of man, man, God, who takes and doesn't give back. He is just and will remember those things and will be faithful and will be just and will take care of you and intervene in your life. It says here, he will not forget your work or the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people. And continue to help them. Christian, do you know that you're not called to love the world? When I was brought up as a Christian, early, you know, young man in my early 20s, or late teens and early, ten, early 20s, I was taught that Christians were supposed to love the world, love the people of the world. It was our ministry and mission as Christians to love the people of this world more than ourselves and to give ourselves for them. That's not Christian. That's not biblical. We're to love our wives. But the Bible here says that we are to work on behalf of God's people. His people. I'm not saying we go around and treat the people of the world badly. Absolutely not. But the focus of God's people. The focus of every Christian should be to demonstrate the love of God to other Christians. Where is Jesus Christ on this planet today? He's not as a a person wandering around, but he is present in the body, in his spiritual body, the church. And we've said this many times here. We don't love one another because we are a social group. I don't love you. I don't serve you because you're all nice people. I love you. I serve you because... Christ is present within you. You are Jesus Christ to me. The body of Christ. And to demonstrate my love for him, I must show it in my actions, in my attitudes, in my commitment to you, the body of Christ. How do you know I love Jesus? You look at my relationship to the church, to the believers. I might not know what's in your heart. You can say, well, Kai, you can't, you can't see what's in my heart. I've had so many people say that to me. So many nominal believers. I believe in Jesus. I love the Lord. But they don't come to church. There's no interaction between church members. When they're required to do something, when God puts them in a situation 
where they have to give of themselves throughout the door into the car and away. Oh, I would love to be able to do that, but on that day I have something. Or I might have something. We'll have to wait and see. I hate that. I never experienced that before I came to Finland. Uh, we're having a conference. Would you like to come? Well, if I'm not doing anything else, you ask me a year in advance, I might have something on. Do you know you have something on? No, but I might, therefore I can't give you an answer. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Beloved, the writer is speaking to his hearers and he says, because I see the evidence of your confession, because I see, because God knows your love for him, you've demonstrated because of your commitment to his people, you can have trust, faith, be assured He's comforting them. He doesn't want them to be burdened with these worries and fears. Well, how could you ever know that you're a Christian? How could you ever know if you're really in the faith? Look at the evidence. Look at what Christ is producing. Look at your attitude towards his people and his, your commitment to them. Continued. Not past tense, but present and future tense. Your relationship to them now and your commitment to them in the future. You're not going anywhere. You're active in the blessing of God's people. And then he says in verse 11, We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. You can't trust in your past life I've been doing this a long time. I've been a Christian for 30 something years. Ridiculous, I'm that old. But I can't look back to an experience I had 30 years ago and say, well, because of that, I know that I am saved. At a certain place, at a certain time, I put my hand up. I never did. I never put my hand up. I prayed a prayer with another man. And the Lord saved me, not because of that prayer. But there are so many in our generation who will say, you know, I had an experience at such and such a church where the such and such a preacher preached and I, I responded by putting up my hand. I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus to come into my heart and save me. And then a time goes on and they're no longer a member of the church. They're no longer attending church. They're no longer part of the Christian community. But they'll still look back to that time when they were in their teenager years or wherever and they said, please Jesus come into my heart and save me. And they'll say, there and then God save me. But if you were to examine their life today, there's no evidence of it. There's no reality. There's no relationship between them and God's people. There's no commitment. There's no going on with Jesus Christ. They're more Christless in their 40s and 50s and in their 60s than they were in their teenager years. Here, the writer is speaking to the readers. The Holy Spirit through him, down through the ages to us today. And he's saying, I want you to show the same diligence, the same care, the same effort, the same perseverance. As you did in the beginning, as you're doing today, all the way to the very end, to whenever that end might be. 
on your last day. You're as careful then as you were on your first day. You're as passionate then as you were on your first day. It is a sad truth that so many of us begin a project with great zeal and passion and enthusiasm and then you achieve that and then it gets boring after a time and you run out of passion and enthusiasm and you look for other things to be passionate and enthusiastic about. The truth is we can apply that same bad habit to the, to the faith. We were enthusiastic when we first came to faith. We were full of joy at this new experience, at this new life that had been given to us. But then as circumstances and difficulties and hardships and life creeps in and a year turns into two years, into three years, into four, and our passion and our zeal and our diligence begins to slide out, begins to wear down, begins to... Other things vie for our attention. And we become not as careful, not as committed, not as zealous for the things of God in our lives. Not just in the church aspect, but in our personal lives, our prayer lives, our Bible lives, or just our Christian expression. Where once we would have said something, now we don't. We become less. And here the Holy Spirit through the writer is exhorting those who are true believers to be diligent, careful, zealous, passionate, committed all the way until the end. Why? In order to make sure your hope is true. Because you can be a false believer and sit in a church for years and years and years and years. I remember Paul Washer's wife and her, her uh, really challenging um, testimony. She had been a, a, a missionary. She had a teenager brought up in church, had gone to the mission fields, had led people to Christ, had been part of mission endeavors, married Paul Washer, been part of the whole heart cry life. And then one day, I think it was in Austin, Texas, at a tent meeting, Paul was preaching from 1 John. And uh, she says in her testimony, she looked across the street because it was an open tent with open doors, open walls. And she saw a prostitute on the other side of the road. And the Holy Spirit said your heart, in her heart, you're no better than that woman. Indeed, in many ways, she's better than you. Because... She's not a hypocrite. And the Holy Spirit spanged her, struck her in her heart and made her realize and see that she hadn't been a true Christian. She'd been an outward one, a cultural one, but she'd lacked the inner reality of it. And there and then she gloriously and wonderfully was born again. Much to the shock and syringe of all of her friends. And she's very unashamed about that testimony. It is possible for those among us to... Be under the false delusion that they are a Christian. Those around us will say to them, Oh, you know, you're like, you put up your hand in a certain meeting. But you're a nice person. You were born in church and brought up in church. You've always been a Christian. 
But unless there's evidence, unless the fruit of the Holy Spirit is seen in your life and in your deeds, unless there's the evidence of your commitment to Christ in his body, you, you need to be careful. You need to examine your life. And it needs to be an ongoing process, not just 30 years ago, not just 10 years ago, not just today, but also in the future. In verse 12, he says to us, we do not want you to become lazy. Oh, Christian, are you a lazy Christian? Are you a lazy Christian? Is life too easy for you? It's terrible to be a Christian in Scandinavia, in the Nordic countries. You go to these foreign countries, you go to the continent of Africa, or you go, go to South America or India. Or I remember my, my trip to Tajikistan and, and, and Afghanistan, where these people have to work. Every day is a battle for their faith. Every day they're risking their very lives. Every day when they go out on the street, they run the risk of, especially in Tajikistan, I remember that the ministers there had their throats cut by the secret police in the street because they were the, they were the ministers of a, of a free church. Are you a lazy Christian? It's too easy sometimes to be a Christian in Scandinavia. But... The persecutions, the hardships, the difficulties that we face are subtle and small, but crippling. Have you ever got a, a speck of dust in your eye? Could you, ah, or an, an eyelash? No, have you ever got your eyelash stuck in your eye? Ah, and you can't see, and your whole life just becomes about that thing in your eye. Just a little tiny, tiny thing. You ever got a, a splinter stick in your hand or in your foot? Not, as a, not just like a little one, but you know, an identical one, proper one. And everything stops because that little tiny piece of wood. Have you ever injured your foot? I have injured my feet. And because of a one little tiny place on your foot is injured... You can't walk. I mean, it's you're just dilapidated. You know, you just don't realize, and the pain shoots through your entire body. Small things it cause great consequences, and we here in Finland, in Scandinavia, in the Nordic countries, we might not go through the dangers of of being at the, at the risk of being murdered every day. But there are dangers that can rob us of our faith. And we, we, can, we can become lazy. Stop being diligent. We don't commune, spend time together with Christ. We don't meditate. I'm not going to say read. I'm never going to say read the Bible again. I'm going to say meditate upon the scriptures. To contemplate them. To consider them. To Roll them about in your mind and in your heart that they might take place. I'm sick of people telling me that they read the Bible. And then I say, well, what did, you, what did you learn from the Bible? I don't know. I don't know. It's not about reading the Bible. It's about meditating. Ruminating. Working it out. Or have you become lazy, Christian? 
God has done everything for us, provided us. We should be the, we who are here in the north, in the top of the world, who have everything in our hands. We have like, how many Bibles do you have on your phone? How many Bibles can you access on your phone? How many speakers and teachers can you access through the internet by your phone? And yet we are still but babes. We should be the ones leading the missionary endeavors of this world. We should be the ones who are standing for the things of Christ and battling the world, the flesh and the devil. And yet, sadly, we are lazy in our faith. Oh, beloved. The Spirit says through the writer, speaker here, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promise. That doesn't mean that those who were waiting on the promises were inactive. Waiting upon the Lord isn't an inactivity. It's not sitting there doing nothing and waiting. Abraham didn't just sit around doing nothing. There's an action. There's a participation. There's, there's the preparing for the blessing of God that's coming. He knew it was coming and he built up his fortune, his, his empire in order that the one who was to inherit it might have an inheritance. He didn't dwell in unbelief and back and forth, back and forth. Beloved, the Holy Spirit does not want us to become lazy. He wants us to remain diligent. He doesn't want us to be distracted by the things of this world should keep our eyes upon him. He comforts us so that we don't become too heavy laden, so we don't become too worried about whether we are or whether we're not. Those who are will look at the evidences and see them and be assured, no, God is moving in my life, not because of me, but because of his grace. Those who are not will look and say, I lack the evidence and hopefully be struck in their heart before it's too late and seek him for mercy and for grace remember that God is not unjust he is not unjust which is a good thing and a bad thing for those who are unfaithful for those who are not living their lives according to his promises his ways, you cannot expect the blessing of God to be upon your life if you're not walking in his ways and keeping his requirements. God is not just going to throw pearls before swine. Beloved, let us be imitators of those who have gone on before us, those that we know and see, but also the biblical. The biblical examples and he will go on to talk about Abraham. Beloved, let us be assured, be comforted, be strengthened. But let us continue in our lives, continue in our walks, continue in our commitment to one another. And ultimately our commitment to Christ. Let us not be lazy, but let us be diligent and continue to the end. That he might receive all the glory. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we are grateful that you do comfort us, that you do strengthen us, you provide for us, Lord. You're always here. We ask, Lord, that those of us who have wobbled and wavered in our faith, Lord, those who have been concerned whether we are a believer or not a believer, that you would assure our hearts, that you would help us to look at things biblically, that, Lord, we, our trust would be in you and in your work on our behalf and in the evidences that you have caused to grow and show in us. Father, for those who do not know you, Father, for those who have lived under a delusion, Lord, for those who have been deceived by those around them and by themselves, we pray, Lord, that you would strike them in their hearts, that, Lord, they would have an immediate and sudden epiphany, that they would see in themselves their need. Please, Spirit, convict them of sin, convince them of the righteousness of Christ, and of their need to have faith in him and him alone. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us Lord, that we would once again receive strength from you. That, Lord, we would be able to go on with you. That we wouldn't waver or wobble in our, in our walk with you. Lord, Lord, you would help us. Help us, Lord, to repent of our laziness. Lord, of the easy believism, of the not doings. Lord, of the just getting bys. Please help us, Father, to be diligent and to be as zealous for you and for your kingdom as we were at the beginning. Help us, Lord, to be now and all the way until the end. Lord, that you might receive glory. But we know that you are not unjust. Lord, we know that you are not unjust, sorry. Lord, we pray, help us. We know, God, that you will repay. We know, the Lord, that you will strengthen us and help us. We ask all these things for Christ's sake. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Okay.